I am Clarice Phillips-Samuel, and welcome to 39 Dashes, the podcast where I traverse life in what would have been 39 or more dashes on Instagram stories. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. My boyfriend is currently downsizing, so in an effort to maximize on space, I bought a bookshelf for all of our books. Listen, before you date a man or a woman, please ask them to collect all of their books and go through them. That will save you a lot of time. And if he or she doesn't read, maybe that's a red flag or pink, you know, but you might not like reading either. So that could be your white horse, your white flag, your white knight, but it wouldn't be mine. I kept my mouth shut as I unpacked books like How to Be a Bad Emperor, The Fortunes of Africa, The ISIS Papers, The Miseducation of the Negro, Rules for Radicals, and all physics books. When I pulled out a calculus book, I finally asked the radical-turned-boyfriend, Why do you have this? His answer? It was $300. And that's how we're different. I would sell a $300 textbook for two nickels if it meant I didn't have to lug it around forever. And my boyfriend is going to keep this stupid book forever to get his quote-unquote money's worth. I was thoroughly perturbed that I'd have 50-pound textbooks on my gorgeous bookcase when we got news that same morning that Putin had invaded Ukraine. And now it seems I'm fine with $300 textbooks. I'm fine with the fact that I'll be reading about bad emperors. I'm fine with the idea that people will come to the house and think we're radicals, stuck between poetry, biographies, and geopolitics, nestled somewhere between pragmatic and dogmatic. And I'm fine watching with the world as Ukraine fights to keep her independence. I record the podcast every week, so that gives me ample time to make sure it's something fresh and top of mind. I want to talk about things that I actually care about and not just have a repertoire of stories, even though that would be ridiculously helpful every single week. I know you too are watching and waiting and crying and holding your breath. So welcome back. I didn't think rejection and feedback would be the avenue that I would use to tell these stories, but I'm aware that those two themes have been present in how I've made decisions and moved through the world these past pandemic years. So I hope my honesty has been helpful. And before I move on from the idea of rejection for hopefully a while, Lord, I don't want to be rejected. (laughs) Um, I've asked myself, what was the kindest rejection I've received? And I think it was from my mom. My mom wasn't brought into the kindest, most loving of circumstances. And no, I don't mean she wasn't given materialistic things or some small first world problem. My mother and her 11 other siblings were abandoned, separated, raised by other people in the community, and mentally, verbally, physically, and sexually abused. And no one has ever apologized to them. And while my mother didn't replicate the atrocities that she endured... She also didn't say, I love you, give hugs, show much affection, apologize, or those sorts of things. But she was ever present, especially when we were younger. And she gave us an education that she could have only hoped for when she was our ages. She rarely left us alone um, or let us sleep over places that were not our home. 
and she kept us clothed, fed, and sheltered. But as I grew older, I realized that I didn't have the nurturing that other people had in their mothers, and I think she knew that I knew. One day we were in the car silent, probably. (laughs) We were often in the car silent, her and I. And she broke the silence and said, Clarice. Actually, it was more like, Clarice. (laughs) Anything I didn't give you, I couldn't give you. Today, it sounds beautiful and telling, but at the time, I was furious that she wouldn't even try. But that day and today, it's one of those things that humanized her for me. Touchy, soft, complimenting love is not a resource she had to give, so she gave other resources. From that day, I've let my mom show up as whoever she wants to be, and I've used the same statement to weigh other people and situations. Clarice, anything that so-and-so did not give you, they couldn't give you. If I'm in a place that is not giving me what I need, because it can no longer give it to me, rather than seeing it as rejection, I stay, or... I pick up my Georgie Bungle, and I go. Fun fact, Georgie Bungle is not an English phrase. I searched it to make sure it was well-known and was today years old when I found out it's in fact a West Indie phrase. There are a bunch of West Indie, Caribbean, St. Tomian, St. Crucian phrases, um, even St. Kitts, um, Nevis phrases that are a part of my childhood and that I say without thought only to find out much later that people in the, in North America have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, it just means your possessions, your Georgie Bungle, where I pick up my Georgie Bungle and go. And if you are not on the short list of people that I ride for, chances are I'm gone. And that's how I ended up in Raleigh. Raleigh was never on my list of places, but here I am. It was 2020. I was 29 years old and I loved my co-workers, the owner of the company, my manager, and so many other people. There were two people specifically that were not my cup of tea that were on the senior team. But you're not going to love everyone, but most people should like you. And boy, did people like me. And as an integral part of their marketing team, I made that company a stupid amount of money. The first two years that I worked there, I didn't really care what I made as long as they worked with my schedule and let me take classes. Then when I graduated, they adjusted my salary for the degree. Again, grateful. I took that salary and got an apartment in South Tampa and quickly learned money don't spend like it used to. I was broke, y'all. And while I may be brokes in August, I knew my review was coming in November and your good sis was going to make a dime. So November comes and I'm given a raise. But instead of signing the paper right away, as I've always done, I tell my manager, Glenn, I'm going to take this home with me. The cost of living has gone up tremendously and I need to be sure that this is a wage I can live off of for the next year. He looks at me bewildered but says, oh, okay. So I took the paper home and fine-tooth combed it. I couldn't figure out why 50-something K wasn't enough money. 
and I found out that I was signing off to a salary where my former company had included my health insurance contribution. They'd even calculated my holidays. They'd calculated my two free 15-minute break every single day (laughs) and more into my salary. So when all of that is removed, I netted far less. It's not a crime to list everything they're contributing to, but it was an inflated way to present information. So I found out the bell curve for everyone who made 25% lower than me, the average, and a 75% higher than me, and I submitted a request for them to adjust my salary to the average. I wasn't even asking for what I was worth. That's how bad I wanted to stay there. I listed my contributions that year, the software that I onboarded everyone on, my certifications that I paid for out of my own money to equip me for the job, and how much revenue I brought into the company. Listen, it was a no-brainer. I submitted it to Glenn instead of signing off on the raise, and he flipped through the salary adjustment, and when he reached the end, he said, Dang, you're smart. To which I said, I know. Days went by. I went to Raleigh to visit my best friends before Thanksgiving. And when I came back, the company had an answer. I was told that while I was correct and owed more, they wouldn't be giving me more. They knew that meant I might leave, but they would just revisit the salary adjustment a year from now when we were out of the pandemic. Little did we all know. I was also told that I should hurry up and sign it so the raise would show up in my upcoming pay. That I should be grateful because I was one of a handful of people who got raises that year out of 200 people. And if I did decide to leave, they would just hire someone at $15 an hour and watch them struggle to learn the ropes. And the defiant, stubborn woman that I've always been, I said, okay, I'll get back to you. Because I know, and I've always known, that I have all of the power. So for the next few days, I cried nonstop, and I found my power. The reason I was crying was because I had turned down so many jobs to stay at this company that I loved. But I knew that if this situation could give me any more, it would have. And so rather than feeling dejected, I took calls at 7 a.m. when I woke up, I took calls on my way to work. I took calls during those two 15-minute breaks that they were billing me for anyway. I interviewed during lunches. I responded to recruiters on my bathroom break. And on my way home, I took interviews. I was relentless. And in days, I had five great offers. And with each passing day, senior management started acting weirder and weirder with me. I shared a wall with HR and could hear them calling around to fill my position just in case. And I still knew I had the power. I signed the raise document, and three days later, as they were still breathing in their giant sigh of relief, I submitted my resignation and gave one week notice. Ironically, it was during the holiday break, so it was actually only three work days. But that's not my problem. That's the calendar's problem. The CEO's mouth fell open. Glenn cried and said he was proud of me, and the owner couldn't believe what he was hearing. But I do not care. The moment you start serving crumbs, 
I'm getting up from the table. There is too much money in America, okay? I still hold all of the love and respect for that company and will probably own it one day, but I refuse to wait on empty promises. When someone shows me that they've given me all that they can give, it's time to go. That company is not on the short list. Honestly, most companies aren't. Not even ones you start. That's why there's such thing as bankruptcy and closing up shop. There is a simple naive side of me that thought all you have to do is tell people how to treat you and be worthy. And people would treat you that way. But that is not true. My mom was always worthy. Some people will treat you how they want to treat you, even when you tell them how you would like to be treated. It's your job to decide if they're on the long or the short list. Today, I'm in Raleigh, working for another company, making more money than I imagined when I was haggling my worth, and I'm right up the street from my best friends. Rejection can be so kind. Sometimes it will feel like you're administering your own rejection and leaving people that you love behind. That is the kindest kind of rejection. Until next time.